Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's a lot to discuss today, so I'm excited to, to roll through a number of um, topics, and, and, and I, think, uh, I think, for me anyway, deep, deep thoughts um, that sort of put together a, a, a lot of different ideas um, relating to, to the overview of this world, of history, of our job in this world, um, how we can do it, um, relating it also to the Parsha, to the to, to, to Yitzchak, who Yitzchak was relative to who Abraham was, to uh, Esav, and who he was relative to Yaakov, and how all this ties together with um, the blessings from Yitzchak, and, and, and the drama involved with that, and uh, also connecting it to, um, to a very particular halach of Shabbos called Borer. And we're going to uh, explain what, what that means, too. So, so there's a, a, a lot to discuss, a, a lot to discuss. Um, and, of course, our thoughts and our prayers are with the, um, with, the, uh, with Sahal, with all uh, Jews all around the world, but especially with the um, uh, soldiers um, in the uh, Israeli Defense Force, uh, the IDF, and all the people in, in the land of Israel, especially, who are dealing with um, all of this uh, war right now. And, you know, it's, it's just worth saying that I'm, I'm very proud of the, the, uh, the Israeli government um, uh, for a lot of reasons. But for, for one particular thing right now that I, I'll just mention before we get into the topic, and this all the Torah learning that we're doing right now should be um, really to to see the real peace, the real peace um, that can come from, from understanding truth in, the, in its most revealed way. And so the, the point that uh, I don't think has gotten any attention, at least in the, the, the dozens of articles that I've scanned, um, but let's just bring it out. It's, I guess it's, for those who know this, it's already obvious, but for those who don't know it, it's not obvious. The name of this operation is Operation Pillar of Cloud. And this was very deliberately selected by the Israeli leadership. Um, and if you don't know the reference, it's just worth mentioning what, what, what this is referring to. It says in, in Parsha's Bishalach, which is the, the Parsha which talks about us actually leaving Egypt. And it says that God went before us in a pillar of cloud. And so by naming this Operation, Operation Pillar of Cloud, what the Israeli, quote-unquote, secular, quote-unquote, non-religious group is saying is that, God, you go before us in all of our battles and in everything that we do. So it's an open acknowledgement of the hand of God and the power of God in this, in this operation and in all things. And believe me, this has not been lost on God, the fact that, that the government named it this. I'd like to say something else, which is that, very interestingly, if you read the American press, this operation goes by a different name, which is Operation Pillar of Defense. Now, this is very, very interesting, and I think also very beautiful, because it says in Pirkei Avos that you shouldn't communicate in a way that people will understand you after the fact, eventually. In other words... This whole kind of idea of being mysterious and very mystical and speaking in riddles and in ways that other people will sort of be impressed by your, how abstract you, you must be and how esoteric you must be, this is not our way. And this, I think, borders on arrogance and, and, and vanity to, to um, present your way in a way that's very impenetrable. Um, you have to communicate. You have to communicate. And so the English press is reporting this, again, I'm sure from the instructions of the Israeli government, Operation Pillar of Defense. In other words, there's a clear understanding that they're not going to get the biblical illusion of Pillar of Cloud. And so they're communicating very clearly. This is a defensive operation. Rockets are being fired against civilians, and that's unacceptable. Therefore, this is a defensive operation. And so the... The act of communicating clearly is also being done simultaneously, which is also very much in accordance with the Torah's instructions. So I think on all sides, 
I just want to just explicate that the name of this operation is really touching on all Torah points and communicating in a very beautiful way. Okay, now let's get into the talk. Again, I want to discuss some very, very large ideas about the outside and the inside, and about how the world presents itself and what the world really is in essence. So there are a lot of themes that that these points are going to touch on. But before we get into that, I want to just zero in on another question, which connects, but it's, it's enough of a separate idea that I want to start with it first, and then we'll get into the more thematic, thematically related uh, concepts. And that has to do with um, the opening of Parshas Toldos. Parshas Toldos begins with um, a famously rep- repetitive verse. <clears throat> You'll hear it immediately. It says, this is the very opening of the Parsha. And these are the offspring of Yitzchak, Isaac, son of Avraham. And then the very next phrase within the same verse, Avraham begot Isaac. So, so it's, it's a little bit mysterious. Like you've just said that these are the chronicles of Isaac, of Yitzchak, whose father was Avraham. Avraham gave birth to Yitzchak. Okay, so in, in other years I've described this as a Mobius strip, if you're familiar with that, uh, with that, uh, with that mathematical uh, construct. Um, and, and I still think that's true, but I, I want to approach it in a, in a different way. <clears throat> because I think that what's being spelled out here is talking about the individual's responsibility in this world. And also, who Isaac was exactly. You see, Abraham gets a lot of play. There are three Parshas completely devoted to Abraham. There are six Parshas devoted to Yaakov, to Jacob. There's one Parsha where we go into the life of Isaac. Only one Parsha. And this is it. Isaac is as great as Abraham and as Yaakov. And yet, his greatness is really concealed. And the question is, what was his greatness? What was his greatness? <clears throat> and I saw in the, um, in the Chabad Chumash um, by Kihot, they, they have a little overview before each Parsha, and it's, it's such a brilliant Chumash, I really, I really recommend that, that everyone get it, especially on Breshis, that's the one that I've spent the most time on. It's, it's just filled with treasures and deep insights. And everyone knows and everyone has heard this contrast between Abraham and Yitzchak, between Abraham and Isaac, that spiritually speaking, Abraham represents chesed and that Yitzchak represents gvura or din. And, and so this is a concept that you're all familiar with and you've heard. But I heard it, they presented it, it, this in a different, in a different way. And it touched me very, very deeply. He said that Abraham was a master communicator. That he got the idea of the oneness of God out to the whole world. This was an amazing thing. But you see, inspiration is very fleeting. You can turn someone on, but then it can evaporate, this level of inspiration. The critical element if a movement is going to take hold, is that there has to be the next step. The next step is the individual who hears the message and internalizes the message and develops the message within themselves and makes it a personal reality. This is the greatness of Yitzchak. This is what Yitzchak did. If it had only been Abraham, it would have been a fleeting year in world history and it would have gone away. What Yitzchak does is he comes and consolidates and makes real the movement of Abraham. In other words, you can't have Abraham without Yitzchak. That's the next stage. And these are different stages in each of our personal spiritual lives. We've got the initial stage where we're inspired. That's when you're in the Abraham phase of your spirituality. But it's not going to go anywhere. You're not going to make anything out of yourself. 
unless you allow it to enter into the Yitzhak stage of your own personal spirituality, which is internalizing the message and making it real and making it true and having it affect your actions. So, they say that the, if you want to put this in a vector, they use the word vector, they said that Abraham is the top going down, the revelation of heaven going down to earth. But then you have to have that vessel picking it up and then redirecting it back to heaven. That's Yitzchak. Okay. So, so Sarah, Sarah also, this, this is the, the power of a woman, as you're pointing out, the, the power of a woman is to, is to create that reality as well. But, but this formulation is, you know, in our, in our prayers, we, we've got this line, this, this patriarchal hierarchy, and that's one of the paradigms that we, that we see these matters through. This is one of the prisms we see it through. The, the greatness of Torah is that it's, it's dealing simultaneously with, with all sorts of paradigms, and many of them overlap. And if you hear something, a teaching that seems to conflict, but they're from authentic Torah sources, most likely the methodology is that they're dealing with completely different paradigms. So in other words, they're not, they're not really conflicting because they're, they've got different reference points. So, so you're right, yes. Sarah did bring this idea out into the world as well. But, but, but there are nuances in the greatness in the way that she internalized it. And that's a separate discussion. In terms of this chain from Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, that's, that's, that's one paradigm in and of itself. So it deserves more thought. What's the difference between Sarah and Yitzchak? And I want to think more about that, because that's, that's a... That's a wonderful porthole for bringing out some very nice new ideas. But, but, but for now, let's make the contrast between Yitzchak and, and, and Abraham. So, so now, you have to understand that Yitzchak represents all of us. The reason why is because Yitzchak is, is the next generation after Abraham and Sarah. So, Yitzchak is everyone who's ever going to come out of Abraham and Sarah. And remember, this includes even converts, Gerim, because they, they also say when they pray, God of my fathers and, and, and mothers, because they're the spiritual descendants. In fact, I heard in the name of the Zohar something very amazing, actually, very, very intense and beautiful, which is that when Abraham and Sarah we're together uh, in, a, in, a, in a marital context, and they were trying to conceive. For many, many years, for decades, they weren't able to conceive. And yet, I heard in the name of the Zohar that their, their intimacy was actually very productive. That what they were conceiving was not people born into bodies, but they were actually minting souls. They were conceiving souls. And these were the souls of later generation converts. So, so on a spiritual level, when a convert says that I am the child of Abraham and Sarah, of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, it's very much true. It's very much true. So, so that's something to keep in mind. Okay. So all of us represent Yitzhak. All of us are Yitzhak. Now, what is... What does the Torah focus in on as his real-world accomplishments? All right, so this is worth looking into. And then we're going to return back to the repetitiveness of the opening verse, and then we're going to move on to some of the other things that we have to discuss. Okay, so, so the big event that seems to be chronicled is that he's digging wells. And... This is, spiritually speaking, is enormous. This is an amazing thing. An amazing thing. It might seem like a minor thing, but it's not. It's an amazing thing. Okay, so remember, all of us are Yitzchak. And the Parsha itself begins very strikingly with each one of us. It says, these are the chronicles of Yitzchak. 
meaning it's talking about us individual, us as individuals, as all the progeny of Abraham and Sarah. So it begins with you, it begins with me. These are the chronicles of Yitzchak, who is the son of Abraham. Abraham gave birth to Yitzchak. Okay, so let's connect it to the wells now. You see, each one of us is different. Each one of us is born with special talents and, and, and unique abilities. There's no one like you. There's been no one like you in all of history, and there's going to be no one exactly like you till the end of days. I learned, I, I don't have a source I can point to, but I was told by a teacher, that even in the context of reincarnation, that when your soul comes into its present habitation, that still there's a little, little difference from what it was before, in terms of combinations with different other spiritual forces and, and whatnot. So, even within the context of reincarnation, you're a unique entity. So, you're unique. Now, the challenge is, and this is what the digging of the wells is, the challenge is, is to manifest your uniqueness and yet tie it back with the stream of your holy fathers and mothers. That's what digging the wells are. Because you see, what happened was, in the time of Abraham, he dug all these wells. And the Plishtim, the enemies of Abraham, went and plugged up all these wells. And then Yitzchak, Isaac, went and redug these wells and named them the same names that his father had named them. Do you see how awesome this is? In other words, you begin with your own spirituality. You dig and you labor to reveal water, which is Torah. Water is Torah everywhere. Okay? That's a, it's a, a known thing from the Talmud, from the Gomorrah. Wherever you see water, it's talking about Torah on a deeper level. Remember, at the time of Noah, the rain that was coming down for 40 days and 40 nights, that was supposed to be the time that God was going to give us the Torah. Because Moshe, a reincarnation of Noah, was up on Harsinai, Mount Sinai, for 40 days. But because the generation didn't merit it, it didn't come down in its spiritual form. It came down in its material form. And they didn't have vessels to hold it. It wiped them out. I learned that from Rabbi Wilson. So water equals Torah. So you have to take your individuality. This is what Yitzchak did. He took his individuality and he dug and he labored to reveal what was truest about himself in the context of his dream, in the context of his fathers. And then when he struck water and reopened the well of Avraham, he named it after Avraham. Now, I heard Reb Shlomo say something very beautiful, a similar idea. Everybody knows when we make motzi on Friday night, we take the bread, the challah, and we dip it in salt. So he said a beautiful Torah on this. He says, bread is only good when it's fresh. It has to be new. Right? He says, salt is a preservative. Salt keeps things that are old still alive, right? So you take the newness, you take your own individuality, you take your own truth, but then you dip it in the salt, the preservative, the wisdom that we've inherited and received over all the generations. And that's how it's done. And that's this concept of digging the wells. Yitzchak, with his individuality, labors to reveal truth and then reopens the wells of Abraham. Now, now we can look into this Pusik. It says, and these are the generations of Yitzchak. Remember, all of us are descendants of Abraham and Sarah. All of us are Yitzchak. First, it begins with your individuality. If you labor to reveal your real truth, you become the child of Abraham. And now, listen to this next part. Abraham gave birth to Yitzchak. Once you connect yourself to that divine flow, you realize that was the destiny of the world the entire time. That Abraham begot you. Once you make yourself a worthy descendant of Abraham, you realize that that was the plan all along. That Abraham begets you. Because you have now placed yourself within the Messorah. You have now placed yourself within the divine flow of this world of truth. Okay. So now I want to move on. There's that covenant of salt. So you're also connecting to that covenant, meaning something that never, never decays. 
salt never decays, but there's a brisk of salt that is also in the garden. Right, right. No, no, no. No, what you're saying is very true, that salt in Torah ideology represents eternity. So, so now, I want to take a look at the next set of, 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 of births. Okay? So, what comes now is, Isaac now gives birth, Yitzchak gives birth to twins to Yaakov and Esau, to Jacob and Esau. And this now is getting very, very deep. This is going to give us a, 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 an understanding of this, of this world. Okay? The firstborn seemingly, meaning to say the first one that comes out of the womb into this world, is Esau. We'll see that he's not really the firstborn in a moment, but, but nonetheless, the, 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 the circumstances of the birth are very much that Esau comes out first. And then Yaakov comes out holding on to his heel. Okay? That's what the name Yaakov means on, on the simplest level. Okay. So, so what's going on with Esau? So, the physical appearance and the Torah, you know, the Torah is not a comprehensive book of world history. If it was, you know, uh, Borges, the, uh, the Latin American uh, writer, a brilliant, amazing writer. If you've never read the short stories of Borges, I, I highly recommend them. They're all meditations on infinity. They're amazing, mind-blowing stories. And he actually, he wasn't Jewish, but he, he learned Kabbalah. In fact, one of his uh, books is called Aleph, named after the letter Aleph. He was very into um, Kabbalistic thought. And he's just one of the masters of, of, of world literature. Anyway, he, he always has these mind-blowing concepts. And one of them is he, he talks about in a story about a, a, uh, a, 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 a map maker who, you know, you know, when you look at a map, there's a scale on it, meaning to say that really one inch on the map equals maybe hundreds or thousands of miles, depending on the map, right? Because everything is miniature. But he talks about a map maker that wanted to, that, that endeavored to make a map whose correspondence was one to one, meaning to say that the map was the actual size of the country. <laughs> Which, if you think about this map, which is the size of the country, which is pointing where everything is, everything is covered with this map, right? It's a, it's a fabulous concept, you know? So, so, so if, the, if the Torah itself was going to be a comprehensive description, because people want to say, why isn't this in the Torah? If the Torah is truth, why isn't that in the Torah? Because very simply, how can the Torah list every single event that ever happened? Then it would be like Borges's map. It would, there would be a one-to-one correspondence between world history and, and, and this book. This book would be literally the size of the world through all times. So, so it, 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 it's, you know, so one has to recognize that the Torah, therefore, has to be very concealed and very compressed. The infinite compressed into the finite, right? So, so, so you have to unpack the Torah, because otherwise it, it doesn't make sense. The alternative doesn't make sense. Okay. So, but, here's the point. So, when the Torah gives you a detail, you have to understand that this detail is very significant. Because it's choosing just the, 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 a teaspoon from the ocean out of information what to describe. So, they describe the physical appearance of Esav as he comes out of the womb. Alright, so, and this is very deep. Now, listen. I, I know I've seen this in my life. Uh, maybe you've seen it as well. It's very striking when you see it. When a child is born, a baby is born with a full head of hair. It's like, whoa, you know? It's like, oh, okay, look at that. You know, it's a, it's a lot of hair in the baby's head. Now, when Asaph was born, his entire body was covered with hair. That's the, that's the very striking detail that's given. In other words... He's born with the appearance of a grown man, 
on, 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 on one level. Do you understand? Now, now, let's go deeper into this, because there's a lot contained in this idea. So, Esav comes from this word Asui. Asui means made. Now, all right, we're going to go deeper and deeper with this idea now. You see, the idea, this is a very antithetical thought to Torah. It's like the opposite of Torah. To ever, ever, ever think of yourself as a finished product. If you think of yourself as a finished product, even if you've got Academy Awards, even if you've got a Nobel Prize, even if you've got billions of dollars in the bank, if you ever allow yourself to think of yourself as a finished product, that's it. You're done. You've, you've gone off the path of truth at that point. Because God is infinite. And our souls are a piece of God's infinity. Which means it's never ending. Which means by definition, there is no end. There is no completion. So if you think that you've, you're done, you know what? I'm done. This is me. If you've ever heard people who say, this is me, run. Run in the opposite direction. Because they haven't gotten this fundamental teaching, this fundamental truth that we're constantly evolving. And the point is, is that we've got to do that happily and willingly and understand that this is our path and to embrace it. Okay. Esav is born, quote unquote, fully made. So this is, this is a consciousness which runs opposite to Judaism. Now, now spiritually speaking, Esav represents the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is the negative inclination. That which tries to get you to go wrong. For instance, when Yaakov wrestles with Esav, the sources say, or the angel, when Yaakov wrestles with the angel, defeats him and gets the name Yisrael, Israel, the commentators say that that was the angel of Esav, that that was the, the Yetzirah, the negative inclination. Okay, now let's get now back to the circumstances of Esav's birth. The fact that he came out first. All right, was he really the firstborn or not? So if you look at Rashi, Rashi says something very deep. It's phrased in a very simple way, but it's very deep. He says if you take a bottle, a thin bottle, right, and it's by intention that this should mirror the anatomically the, the womb and the structure of a woman. If you take this thin bottle and you put a marble in it, let's say it's a, let's say it's a blue marble, you put that in. And then in this thin bottle, you take a red marble and you put that in. Okay, so the red marble has come in second, right? If you turn it upside down, the first one that will come out is the last one that went in the red marble will come out first. So this is Rashi's way of making us understand that Yaakov was the first one who was conceived. So spiritually speaking, he's very much the firstborn. He was the first one conceived. Not only that, but it's deeper than that. Because, you see, when Esau comes out second, he represents what's called klipa. The klipa is, spiritually speaking, those barriers to spirituality. Okay? In, in modern Hebrew, if you look at the peel, the rind of a fruit, it's called klipa, meaning to say it's what has to be peeled off to get to the real essence of what the fruit is all about, which is the inside of the fruit. So, so it's very appropriate so let's review. Yaakov was the first conceived. Yaakov is the fruit. Esav was later conceived. He's the first one out. But he's the peel, the klipah, the Yetzirah. That which, that which comes before us and say it's fully made. Now let's get into this because this is really the point. All that was homework for really this point. The world comes before us and says it's fully made. 
The world comes before us and says, this is all that there is. Asui, done, made, finished. But you have to understand that that's just superficial reality. That's the Yitzhahara. That's what comes to us. You come to a certain point in your life. And all of a sudden, all the circumstances around you say, finished, done, made, nothing left. This is what it is. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's klipa. It's just the outside presenting itself like Asa presenting itself as a hairy man, as he's a newborn. Who, who, who's a newborn? Who, who's a finished product when they're a newborn? Who's, who has the status of a man? As a, as, a, as a newborn baby. The, the idea itself is absurd. It's absurd to think that God in His goodness made this world with all the problems that this world has, all the injustice, all the hatred, all the war, and to think that God in His perfection made this world and that this is the finished product. It's absurd. It's absurd as it is to look at a newborn baby and call that baby a man. It's not a man. It's a baby. It may be male, it may be male, but it's not a man. What a, what a person has to go through to become a man or an adult, many things, many, many things. You're not born a complete product. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculousness. You know, I noticed this. I haven't heard this before. I'm sure it's an old Torah, but no one told me. So... Everybody knows that the first seven days of creation are a microcosm for the history of the world. And that the last day, the seventh day, which is Shabbos, represents the era of perfection of Mashiach. As we know, the Messianic period is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. So the seventh day of creation represents that period of ultimate fixing and ultimate perfection. That which God had in mind at the very beginning of creation. Right now we're partners with God in terms of reaching that vision of perfection that God had at the very initial stage. That's why, that's why Yaakov was the first conceived. Because perfection, truth, we say Titan Emet Yaakov, truth was that which was conceived first. And that's represented, that will be revealed in the Messianic era, which is the seventh, which is, which correlates with the seventh day of creation. Why am I telling you this? Because the word Sheva, which means seven, which correlates with Shabbos, which correlates with the perfection of the world. Sheva is the same word as Shvua, which means a vow or an oath, meaning to say what is the vow that God made? That the world will be completed and redeemed and perfected. That's the concept of the seventh day, not just meaning the ear of Mashiach, but that which was vowed by God to bring. And right now we're in the process. And I have to tell you, just because just it's one of my favorite Torahs, from Reb Shlomo, who said, you know, what a grape has to go through to become wine. How much it has to be stepped on. He says, the world loves finished products. The world loves you when you're a grape, and the world loves you when you're wine. But what about in between? When you're being stepped on and everything like this, and everything that we have to go through. He says, the people who love you then, those are your true friends. When you're in the middle. And, and I added to that Torah and said that this world is still in this in-between state right now. And those who love God now, while there's still imperfection in this world as we perceive it, these are God's real friends. Because the world is on its way to, to reach this level, this, this thing that God vowed, this Shvua, which will manifest itself in Sheva, which is the seventh day, which is the perfection of the world. We're heading toward that era. Okay. Now, I want to bring out another point, and then I want to talk about this, the idea of borer, which is going to tie all these things together. A fascinating thought, I think. But, but let's go on to this next stage, which is the blessing 
that Isaac, Yitzchak, gives to Yaakov, thinking that it's Esav, right? And then Esav runs in and he cries tears. And they say that we're still paying for these tears, by the way, because there's an aspect of Esav that really did want to connect. In fact, we say that in, in Morasamach Pelan, the cave of the patriarchs, Adam and Eve are buried. Abraham and Sarah are buried. Yitzchak and Rivka are buried. Yaakov and Leah are buried. And some say the head of Esav. So there's an aspect of Esav, right? This aspect of Esav which cries when he doesn't receive the blessing. That opened up gates because he wanted to connect. Because there was a part of him that was there, but not enough. That's the sad truth. Just not enough. But, that's one way of looking at it. And another way of looking at it, the fact is he did want to connect. Okay. So, Yitzchak gives him a blessing. Alright? Now, what's so fascinating is, and we're going to look at the difference in the blessings. Because, on first appearance, it looks like the same blessing more or less, that they get. But when you look, I want to focus in on one key change. There's a certain reversal of priorities that's given in the language of the blessings, and I want to just zero in on that, okay? So let's, 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 uh, let's listen to this, okay? Now, this is very deep. This is my, 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 my interpretation. So, Yitzchak thinks that this is Esav coming before him. But really it's Yaakov. Okay? But you see, the nature of true prophecy is, it doesn't matter what you're thinking, God knows the truth. Right? So you can be thinking whatever you like. But the, the right words are going to come out because it's God who's speaking through you. Okay? So we'll keep that in mind. So Yitzchak thinks that this is Esav, but God knows it's Yaakov. And he blesses him. He blesses him. He says, and may God, this is uh, in uh, Genesis and Breshis 27, verse 28. And may God give you of the dew of the heaven, of the heavens, and the fatness of the earth, and abundant grain and wine. Okay? And may God give you of the dew of the heavens, and of the fatness of the earth. Now, before we explain the meaning of that, let's just contrast it, okay? Because, because later on, here's how the blessing is going to go when, when Yitzchak knows that he's giving it uh, with certainty to Esau, right? He says, So Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, of the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and of the dew of the heavens from above. So the dew of the heavens and the fatness of the earth are flipped around. Does everyone hear that? So now let's try to explain it. First we have to understand who Esav could have been. Esav could have been like Superman. Right? He was a, he was a warrior. He was a warrior, but at the same time, and he was someone who was a very smooth talker. So he was a warrior. He was an orator. He was someone who was the... The, the child of, of Rivka and Yitzchak, whose grandparents were Abraham and Sarah. Can you imagine what, what, how, how spiritually blessed he was and how powerful he was in terms of the ways of, of this world? He could have been this, the ultimate fusion. The ultimate fusion. In fact, and I read this in like one of these Shul Parsha uh, newsletters, so I, I can't quote you the source, but I've been intrigued by this idea ever since I read it. It was a whole long, complicated Torah, but I'll just cut to the, 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 the essence right here. They said, according to spiritual genealogy, Esav was supposed to marry Leah, and their firstborn was supposed to be Yosef. Now, if you think about that, it gives me chills just saying it. Yosef, if you think about who Yosef was, that's who Esav could have been. But like the, but the earlier form, and therefore the greater form of Yosef, right? Because who was Yosef? Yosef was the king of Egypt. He was the one who ran all political affairs while being the ultimate believer in God. Right? So imagine who Esau could have been if he was to be his father. 
Right? Wow. He didn't make it. He didn't make it. He didn't make it. So why did, why did Yitzchak want to give him this blessing? Because he thought he could make it. He thought that he could make it. And that he was there enough that it was going to happen. And this is why I think that it begins, because remember, Yitzchak, Isaac, thinks that he's blessing Esau. And this is why I think that the initial blessing begins with the dew of the heavens and with the fatness of the earth. Meaning to say, Yitzchak wanted to spiritually strengthen and embolden Esau. So he began the blessing with the dew of the heavens, with the inspiration from above. That, that's the beginning of it. And then with the fatness of the earth, with material wealth and parnosa and things like that. But he needed strengthening in spirituality because that's how he began. But God knew the truth. God knew, God knew that, that this blessing was going to Yaakov the whole time. So he blesses Yaakov, God blesses Yaakov with the dew of the heavens because that's our life source. It's not that we need strengthening in that direction. That's, we can't exist without that. And so, first things first. First you have to know that everything comes from above. And so, the priorities are the priorities of Yaakov. And they're properly laid out. But do you see how both are simultaneously true? One from the standpoint of heaven, and one from the standpoint of Yitzchak, who thinks he's blessing Esau. Okay. So again, he begins with the emboldening him spiritually. Now, now the next chapter in this is fascinating. Because the next chapter is Isaac blessing Esau, knowing what's just happened. Right? Now he knows that, wow, the blessing that I thought to give you wasn't the right blessing, because clearly God wanted it to go to Yaakov. So now... Isaac changes around and he customizes with great intention the blessing for Esau. And he says to him the following, I'm blessing you with the fatness of the earth. And listen, listen to this, because this, is, this is, sounds like a little detail, but I think this is quite actually devastating. He says, Behold, the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling. He doesn't say that when he gives it to him, when he thinks he's giving it to him the first time. So he says, Behold, the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and the dew of the heaven from above. So I think what happened was, at this point, Yitzchak finally knew what the score was. He finally had an accurate x-ray of who his two children were, spiritually speaking. And he said, you know something? Esav is, his mom is not there yet. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless him with material success with the fatness of the earth, which is going to be his dwelling, because I see that's his nature, but I want to bless him with so much abundance, and then the blessing continues, and with the dew of the heaven, that he should recognize eventually that he should spiritually evolve to the point where he sees that all this material blessing is actually coming from heaven. And so now it's a customized bracha because he knows who he's talking to at this point. What Esau's real spiritual level is at this point. So he blesses him with material success and then spiritual success, meaning to say that his consciousness should expand and evolve, that he should know that his material success is coming from heaven. Okay? Everyone get it? Okay. So now I want to move on to Bora. And we'll... Wrap it up with this. And this is, this is a big thought. So just take a deep breath. <laughs> Inhale. Exhale. All right. Now, we have 39 categories of work that define how to experience Shabbos. All right? Now, something that and these come from the building of the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle in the desert, which is that porthole between heaven and earth. All right, it becomes the first base of Migdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. The fixing of the world is synonymous. In fact, the Rambam brings Alpi Halacha, that Mashiach is not Mashiach 
The great Redeemer that we've been waiting for is not the great Redeemer unless he builds the base of Migdash. In other words, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to scratch your head. Is that Mashiach? Is it not Mashiach? Simple. Did he build the base of Migdash? Did he not build the base of Migdash? We Jews are very practical. If there's a figure in human history who claims to be the Messiah and he didn't build the base of Migdash, sorry, sorry, you're out of luck. It, it's not him. You got the wrong guy. Okay? So, so it's very, very clear. You're either building the third holy temple here or not. So, so, but in other words, what, what, we, what we see here is the centrality of the idea of the holy temple. And of course, the Mishkan is the prototype of this. So it, it represents the completion of the world. So the 39 forms of labor that you can't do on Shabbos, this is also known as keeping Shabbos, being Shomer Shabbos, right? Celebrating Shabbos, right? So in order to, to do that, as, as, as God envisions, the, 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 the ideal form of it is that you're not doing these 39 categories of labor. Okay. So the first question is, how come 39, which is a very peculiar number, why not 40? We love 40. 40 is great. 40 is the dimension of a mikvah. 40 is the time that, 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 that Moshe was up on, on Mount Sinai getting the Torah. 40 is fantastic. 40 is the period of time that a baby, before a baby assumes its gender and comes into form in the womb. So 40 is great. It's the, it's the number of ultimate completion. What's this 39 categories of labor? So I heard it explained that um, there is a 40th category of labor. But it's making something out of nothing. And since only God can do that, we don't have to worry about inf- breaking that one on Shabbos. <laughs> no matter where you're holding, spiritually speaking, no one's doing that 40th category of labor on Shabbos. You know? So thank God, thank God, on some level, the entire world is keeping Shabbos on some level. So, so anyway, so, so there are 39 categories of labor. Now, now, let's go into, uh, a little deeper into this. Why? And I want to just, just so you know, let's, let's just make sure we understand what we're talking about right now. I'm going to come to explain to you a very specific law of Shabbos and to show you its global applications. Okay? And um, let me just state that, and then we'll go back and figure out why building the base of Migdash should be connected to observing Shabbos at all. They seem like, um, it's, it seems like a non sequitur. Okay. So, so, so first, let's, uh, first let's understand what law we're going to explicate. There's a category called borer. Borer basically means to separate and to organize. And there are a lot of different applications of borer. Okay? So, um, so, so, but in terms of eating, one of the most practical applications of borer, and now listen very carefully to this, because you'll see philosophically this is very, very rich. On Shabbos, you're allowed to remove the good from the bad, but you're not allowed to remove the bad from the good. During the week, you can remove the bad from the good. On Shabbos, you can only remove the good from the bad. All right, wow. So that's like, okay, now that sounds like, okay, now, all right, that sounds like we're in a good neighborhood. We're, we've just walked into the museum. There's a lot to see, you know? All right, we're going to get into it. But first, let's, again, endeavor to be practical. What is a practical application of this? And what does it have to do with gefilte fish? All right, we're, we're going to get to that in a moment. So, 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 for instance, here's an application. Imagine you're served a piece of uh, uh, salmon. Okay, because it's important to have fish on Shabbos. When I first got married, my father-in-law asked me what was being served for dinner, for Friday night dinner. And, you know, I just told him what I thought was being made. And he said, are you having fish? And I said, no. And he said, my uncle risked his life during World War II to have fish on Shabbos. He risked his life. So after that, I don't think we've ever gotten a meal without fish on Shabbos. And what's the reasoning behind it? Well, that's a whole topic. It's deep. But, but it's... So fish is part of the Shabbos experience. So, um, 
But I'll tell you that I, I won't answer your question, but it reminds me of one of my all-time favorite stories. So um, the, 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 the Malach, Rav Baruch, um, was one of the great early Hasidic masters. And the uh, Berdichever Rebbe came to his house for Shabbos one time. And he didn't want him to come because he knew that the Berdichever Rebbe was so, so in love with God, so, so, so excited and everything like that. And the Shabbos table that he ran was like very, very ordered and very exact. Bless you. And, and, and he knew that the Berdichever Rebbe was going to upset the entire mood and balance of what they were used to. So someone was coming around and it was up to the fish meal because fish and Shabbos has been connected. There's stories in the Gomorrah of people catching fish for Shabbos and everything like that. It's, it's, an, ancient, it's an ancient correlation. I'll tell you the word dog, for instance, Dalit Gimel adds up to seven. So even the word for fish adds up to the number seven. And all of the essential foods for Shabbos all add up to the number of seven. Yayin, you see it also, Yayin is 70, seven plus zero is Kala, all, all these things add up to seven. But you see it by fish also. Anyway, so, so, so apparently this was like a real interesting thing. There was sweet fish, and then there was another type of fish, I'm not sure. Maybe it was sharp fish, like more spicy, I'm not sure. But it's sort of like, they were like different spiritual paths, like which type of fish would you have? And so the, the uh, person who was serving offered the Burditch of Arebi who promised to be absolutely, you know, calm and, you know, observe what the order of the house was. And he offered him, he said, which type of fish, this was, I guess, the way they spoke, which type of fish do you love? And he waved his hands in the air and he said, I love God! And he knocked the entire tray of fish out of his hand and it went flying and it landed on the talus of Reb Baruch. And people were like, ay, 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 this is like, this, ay. You know, and, and they came up to Reb Baruch and they wanted to clean it and listen to this. Now, you would imagine he would be upset, he, you know. He said, no. He said, this is the stain from someone who really loves God. And that talus actually became holy. And that talus was passed down. And I haven't got all the steps. At first, the, the next person who got it only would, 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 would wear it on Shabbos. And then the next person who got it would only wear it on, I think it's Yom Kippur. The last person who got it um, was the Mooncatcher Rebbe. And he actually requested to be buried in it. Okay, so this was like an incredibly prized thing. So anyway, the, the, it's in, uh, if, you, if you want to see the story with all of its details, I'm leaving out details. It's in the collection of stories uh, um, that Aronson puts out of Reb Shlomo. Um, I think it's called Shlomo Stories, the name of the book. But anyway, uh, all this is to say that, that, that fish is, 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 is a staple of Shabbos. Now, you might, when you get a piece of fish on Shabbos, want to take out one of the bones. Now, that would be violating Shabbos. Because at that point, you're removing the bad from the good. The bone is considered bad because you don't want to eat the bone. So you're removing the bad from the good. The fish is, is the good thing. So that's called borer, and that's an act of labor, and you can't do that on Shabbos. You can only remove the good from the bad. And now this is where gefilte fish comes from, if you don't know this already. Gefilte fish is actually the fish and the bones all ground up together so that no one should remove the bones from the fish. No one, so, so, and if you think, it's interesting because if you think, what's more Jewish than gefilte fish? I don't know even if a Jewish person is more Jewish than gefilte fish. I mean, gefilte fish might be more Jewish than I am. Because gefilte fish is not a recipe, it's a halachic construct. It's actually, it's, 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 it's an embodiment of Shabbos, which is an embodiment of Mashiach. <laughs> it's quite, 
it, it's quite amazing. So, so yeah, it's no, it's no coincidence that, 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 that gefilte fish has, has, has become so Jewish because its roots are all in Torah law. Okay. So now, now, let's get into the philosophy of this. So, so if you were to tell me that all categories of work are based on the construction of the Beis HaMikdash, that seems to be a little bit strange. Because why not baking bread? Why not making a baby? Why not writing a book? I mean, you could really pick any significant action and say that that action should be the paradigm for all of labor. Right? So why is building the base on Migdash considered the paradigm from which you're able to derive what all work can be understood as heading toward? Okay. So now, now let's, uh, let's look at it. You see, the Kabbalistic model of the creation of the entire universe is the following. First, before the world was created, this is what's called Simsum. Before the world was created, it was only God. Then God created this empty space within himself. It's called the vacated space. And of course, the big Kabbalistic joke is that even the vacated space is filled with godliness, by the way. But anyway, so to speak, God created this vacated space. Now, this correlates with the womb of a woman. And God shines a light into this vacated space and creates the physical universe. That's like the birth of a child. So it's, a, it's, it's an amazing parallel between the creation of the world and each of us individually. As it says in the Talmud, a person who saves one life, it's like he saved the whole world. So you see, really, that there's a, an amazing parallel between the birth of the universe and the birth of each one of us. But, here's the point. This ray of light which comes into this vacated space, right? And we've talked about this many times, sometimes using the, the imagery of a, a water molecule going from vapor to water to ice, that it's one continuous spectrum that this light that God shone into the world became increasingly materialized, physicalized, until the very last moment where it becomes the size of a mustard seed, all of the universe with its trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of light years, right? And planets and galaxies and everything like that began with the size of a mustard seed. And what was that mustard seed? The base Hamigdash foundation stone. This was called the Evan Shasia. This was the, the, the foundation stone of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And then that exploded outwards, which is what science calls the Big Bang, and then it became the physical universe. But you see something very amazing based on this, which is that the very first particle of materiality in the universe, which eventually gets expanded to encompass the entire universe, the DNA of the entire universe is the Holy Temple. You see, the whole universe is made out of the Holy Temple. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So I saw, I, I always confuse it, whether it's the Rashba or the Rashbam. I think it's the Rashba, but anyway, you can look it up. He says that when each of us wake up in the morning, the first thing we're supposed to do is wash our hands. And you know that the Kahanim, right, washed their hands before they went into the Mishkan, before they went into the Holy Temple, in order to do the service, the Holy Service, Corbonus and everything like that. So the Rashba, I think it is, says that each one of us are like Kahanim. And when we wash our hands in the morning, it's to get us ready to do service in this world, which is the base of Migdash. That this whole world is the Holy Temple. And you see, on the deepest level, he's right. Because that first particle of materiality, the birth of the whole universe, becomes eventually, or that first particle, which is the Holy Temple, eventually becomes the whole universe. Okay, so now, with this in mind, we can understand why it's thoroughly appropriate, completely appropriate, that all sorts of labor, that if you're going to desist from labor, 
that the ultimate paradigm would be building the base of Migdash, since the entire world is made out of the base of Migdash. So when we talk about building the base of Migdash, what we're really talking about is completing the world. That's what the idea is. We're talking about completing the world. Now remember, the world is filled with God. The world Now God expands beyond this world. Remember, always very important to remember, it's not, we don't say the world equals God and God equals the world. That's another religion, okay? What we say is that God fills and saturates the entire world and exists dimensions beyond it. Okay. So now, but what we know is that the entire world is filled with godliness. But it hasn't been completely revealed yet, so there's darkness in this world still. And we call for our conversation right now, we call these aspects which, of godliness, which haven't been completely revealed, we're going to call it bad. Okay? Okay. During the week, you can remove the bad from the good. You see? Because it's all good. But that bad is those aspects which haven't been revealed as an aspect of the oneness of God yet. So during the week, we're laboring, we're laboring, we're laboring to remove the bad from the good. Meaning to say, to light up the bad. To show that really it's only God. And we do that through Torah and mitzvahs and things like that. Every time you do a mitzvah, you reveal God's presence in that space. And you, 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 you light up the world. And that's called the removal of bad from good. Okay, but on Shabbos... On Shabbos, you can only remove the good from the bad. What does that mean? Now, this is very interesting, okay? Because Shabbos is called Mien Halam Abba, a little miniature, a little snapshot of the perfected world. So in Shabbos, we don't, we don't do the 39 forms of labor. Do you know why? Because we're living as, as if the Mishkan has been built already. <laughs> We're living as if there's no more work to do. We're dwelling amidst the perfection now. That's the amazing aspect of Shabbos. We're we're experiencing life as though Mashiach has already come. Once a week. This is why this is why Shabbos is it's not just a good thing, it's not just a mitzvah. How can you go through life without it? How can you go through life without experiencing an aspect of the perfection that we're heading toward. So, so on Shabbos, you can only take the good from the bad. Meaning to say, at this point in history, there's still, quote-unquote, bad. We haven't finished yet. Right? And what is that bad? That bad is those aspects of the world where there's still injustice, where there's still hatred, where there's still obstacles to serving God. So, so that, that bad represents exile, where we are right now. But, we experience it, we're only experiencing the good once a week. So if you want to think of it in a diagram form, imagine a big circle, and that's all lit up, that's all white light. That's, that's God filling the entire universe. Then imagine a smaller circle in between, that's black. That's the work that still needs to be done to reveal the oneness of God. And now imagine within that one more circle, which is all white. That's Shabbos every week. <laughs> so, so, so during, during the week, we're in that black space. And we want to light up that black space, right? We want to show that it's only God. It's only God. During Shabbos, though, we're in that white space amidst the black space, which is that, you know what? It's true we're still in exile, but right now we're only celebrating the oneness and the total revelation of God's oneness. So how do we manifest this? And again, this is the greatness of Jews. How do we do it? By not taking bones out of fish, for one thing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how great the Torah is? That ideas, that ideas like this come from not taking a bone out of fish. You might say, what difference does it make if I take a bone out of fish or not? Listen to this talk. It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. 
We find ways, this is the greatness of halacha, this is the greatness of mitzvahs, we find ways to take the most exalted concepts and we bring them down to tangible, mundane reality. And if you say to me, it's so mundane, what difference does it make? I say back to you, because it's so mundane, (laughs) because it's so mundane, it's the most transformative thing. We're heading to Hanukkah. What's the whole idea of Hanukkah? We're lighting below ten fachim. Ten fachim. In other words, the, 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 the aspect of this dimension that we live in is still dark. And the whole point is to light up the darkness. To come down into light. To do our lights in a low space. Where it's lighting up the darkness. We're, we're lighting it up during the winter time. The whole point of how mundane Jewish law can get is because it is so mundane. Because nothing, nothing is being done outside of the eyes or, or the presence of God. And, and, and so, so, so we bring all of these things all together, you know. And uh, Hashem should, should bless us that, that, that really all these things, let's just, we, we said a lot of points. Let's just review them very quickly. The name of this military operation is Pillar of Cloud. We should know that God goes before us at all times, right? Esav, Esav presents itself, the world presents itself as a finished product. It's not true. That's the Yetzirah. That's Klippa. None of us are finished products. We have to know that we have to dig further. We have to take out that peel. And then we get to the truth. We realize that we're heading towards something. That the word seven, Sheva, is the same name as Shvua. God is making an oath that he's bringing us to this era of perfection. That we should know that, that our ultimate sustenance comes from above. That first comes the dew of the heavens, and then, and then comes the fatness of the land. And we should know that, that this whole world is made out of the base of Migdash, and that God fills it with his goodness. And when we wash our hands in the morning, that we're, we're heading out to do a voda. We're heading out to light up the darkness. And Hashem should bless us that we should have good fish on Shabbos. <laughs> that we should be walking to filter fish. <laughs> and that we really should always see success and bracha and light and redemption. Yeah.